So imagine the scene in a room probably twice the size of that space behind me. Uh, a woman, uh, slight, a bit like a birch tree perhaps, or a willow, uh, with hazel hair and clear eyes, and a simple cap on her head, and a linen dress, sitting at a table, musing and writing, and being interrupted by visitors who come and seek her counsel at one of the windows to her cell, putting down her pen in order to attend mass through the window of her cell which looks into the church, uh, and having her maid bring her her food to a third window, um, where she also passes her detritus to the maid to sort out. The maid is the connection with the, with the world outside. And imagine that woman remaining in that place, in that space, for about 30 years, reflecting on these extraordinary visions which she had when she was 30, uh, before she entered the cell, uh, when she came to the crisis of a fever. It was, the 14th century was a plague-ridden century, a pestilence-ridden century, as they called it. Uh, uh, but we don't think it was the plague that she had. Uh, she was attended by her mother uh, and by a curate and by her maid at that point. We don't actually know for sure that the woman who had these visions in 1373, 650 years ago, uh, is the woman who was in a cell uh, in Connorsford in Norwich. Uh, we know there was a Julian of Norwich. There's independent evidence for that uh, in legacies. Uh, but the manuscripts of the visions, uh, which speak of a, in the first person of a woman um, having these visions when she's 30 years old in May 1373, those manuscripts are all much, much later. So it is a matter of conjecture that the woman who had the visions and wrote about them is the woman who is Julian of Norwich. The manuscripts say that it, it's she, but these are rubrics added later, which is why my book has to be historical fiction, but I think it's quite plausible. Julian has always been important to me, the shining light in a dry theology degree at Oxford many, many years ago, Unlike so many other theologians, she didn't try to organise God. And later, the subject of my doctoral thesis on her contribution to facing the ecological crisis. When in 2019 I was diagnosed with myeloma, a cancer of the blood, she stopped being the subject of my academic study and became my spiritual guide through two and a half years of gruelling treatment. I wrote letters throughout that time which reflected on how she teaches us to face pain. In a voice, I discovered, because of the pain, my own deepest, most truthful voice. And those letters were published in, in this book. As I came to the end of the treatment in July 2021, I heard a call to tell Julian's story with that same deep authenticity in homage to her. In sharing something now of what Julian has taught me, I hope to show how she operates, not by working out a theology with which we can agree or disagree, but by fierce, visceral, performative encounter with her visions. 
In her writing, she is reliving the visions that she saw, so much so that they come alive again under her pen, inviting her readers to performative encounter, not with her, but with what she saw. If we let it be so, the encounters can transform us. And it is this transformation that I believe is needed today to face the ecological crisis that is upon us. So first, something about what she taught me about pain and blood. 8th of May, 2019. Dear readers, Julian's revelations take place on a crucifix her curate is holding before her eyes as she lies, apparently dying, in bed. It is this crucifix which she sees move and speak and bleed. In her fourth vision, blood flows from the crucifix in abundance, not only over all the earth, but also down into hell and up into heaven, where Christ still bleeds for humanity. Julian thinks of all the water in the world God has made available for human use. But of the blood, she sees, there is no liquor that he liketh so well to give us, for it is most plenteous as it is most precious. Water washes us, but Christ's blood really washes us, inside and out, of our sins. I am not a good Christian. I would far rather wash in water than in blood, less sticky. And sin is a hard word to hear. But it seems to me that without a sense of sin, I mean proper moral responsibility, there can be no remorse. And without remorse, there can be no melting of the heart, no possibility of porosity to the other, of accepting help. I do not think my cancer is a punishment for my sins. Never that. Never, ever that. But I do think this. I fully share responsibility for the general mess that humans generally make of our world, cancer being a still largely unexplained part of that mess. I am sorry. I accept that I cannot, on my own, make reparation or make good. I accept help. And, this is strangely hard to write, forgiveness. Today, this is how I receive and understand and accept Julian's blood flood. There is so much water and blood in my life now. Three litres of water to be drunk every day. Files of blood withdrawn every week from the crook of my elbow, bleeding into the cannula to ensure the nurse has found a vein to infuse the chemotherapy and then infuse more water for hydration. And every day the recollection, sometimes through deliberate, gentle meditation, of the blood flowing throughout my body, bringing life, and also producing the cells that will harm me. Blood and water mixed like the blood of Christ, wine and water mixed in the Eucharistic chalice. They pass through my body, washing me deep inside, flowing through arteries and veins and capillaries, even into my very marrow where the cancer is active. A sacred symphony to heal my helpless self. 
I am made porous by humility, and I hear the symphony, and I am grateful. Twenty-second June. <clears throat> Dear readers, I resonate with Julian when she wishes to experience the pain of the passion. I'm not here writing here about some masochistic urge to be hurt, but rather the absolute revealing of the truth of myself, in extremis, nothing covered up. Julian's eighth revelation is of the last moments of Christ dying on the cross, and her encounter with him in this extreme state is so porous that her wish is granted and she does indeed suffer the pains of the crucifixion. It is a pain worse than anything she has experienced or could have imagined before. A voice, a friendly voice, counsels her to look away from the cross and transfer her gaze straight up to heaven. But she refuses, understanding that she is looking at heaven already in the bloody, disfigured face of the dying Christ, battered and destroyed by the world he revealed himself to without any protection. I just know that this is true. We have to go through the pain, or call it fear, not over it or around it, because resurrection is here, not elsewhere. My encounter with Julian's text whilst I was undergoing cancer treatment became the encounter that I argued for in my thesis on Julian and ecological consciousness, and I will never cease to be grateful to her. As I mentioned, at the end of my treatment, I heard what only can be described as a call to tell Julian's story with the same deep authenticity I had discovered in writing the letters. Here is a taste of how I paid homage to Julian by re-seeing her visions and seeking to bring them to renewed life and meaning. From the first revelation. And now, in the light shed by the cross, I see a young woman barely out of childhood. Her eyes are fixed on me, but I do not think she sees me. Her lips are parted in an astonished, oh, and her eyes, in her eyes, I see intense concentration and fear, or is it awe? I understand in my heart that this is Mary as she was when she conceived, and she is, even now, receiving God into her body. I see her again, Thomas, as I speak to you, and she is looking into my eyes, and I can feel in my body the dread that she felt, and I understand it better because the visions came to birth in me, and they too are so much greater than I. In her conceiving of God, Mary was a poor creature of no consequence, as am I. Why does God come to such as we? I have so often wondered. It's why I wanted to speak my story to you. Is it because we know we are nothing? Out of nothing, something is coming to birth. 
Seeing Mary receive the creator of the universe into her own body breaks open my own being to receive what is to come, not just to witness, but to receive into the heart of me all its strangeness and size. To be transformed as Mary is transformed by her receiving. So that's something of what Julian is, what she wrote and what she did for me. But what is this ecological challenge? And how does this extraordinary power of transformative encounter that we find in Julian help? We are children of the Industrial Revolution, of the Enlightenment, of settled arable communities who learned how to adapt the environment to our needs rather than adapt our needs to the environment. We are used to thinking of our environment as something outside of us to be arranged to our liking so as to produce what we need and want when we want it. We are used to being in charge. The mindset that underlies this attitude towards the environment can be characterised as buffered, a concept from historian Charles Taylor, and gestell, a concept from philosopher Martin Heidegger. Taylor, Charles Taylor, argues that the buffered self emerged in the West over the five centuries between 1500 and 2000, the period that includes the Reformation, the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. The buffered self sees herself as hermetically sealed off from others, needing to create relationships as one plus one plus one, rather than as a porous self who is inherently in relationship who knows I am because you are. Gestell is a mindset which puts nature into what Heidegger calls standing reserve, there waiting to be used with no inherent value, only that which humans confer upon it. The harm done by the buffered Gestell mindset might have been limited when there weren't so many of us and we had not much technological power. Now we are vast in number, all looking to the environment to give us what we want, when we want it. And our technological power gives us the impression that we can make this happen. As the environmental historian Jay McNeil has described so vividly and comprehensively, humanity has succeeded in affecting and changing every sphere of the planet, the atmosphere with greenhouse gases, the hydrosphere with dams and pollution, the lithosphere with mining, the pedosphere with farming, and the biosphere with our rogue species status, such that other species only survive if they can adapt to the human presence, for example, rats and viruses, or if we have need of them, for example, cattle and wheat. But our apparent lordship of creation is an illusion. Heidegger argues that technology far from serving humanity's needs, is now the dominant force determining our futures. Technology is lord of creation. The problem is not technology itself, mind, but the te technological mindset that puts it in charge. This is the ecological challenge. These forces of relentless control and technological manipulation are why our planet is now betraying its fragility and roaring in pain. 
It is the buffered Gestell mindset that has brought this tragedy about. And as with all tragedies, it is the character of the protagonist that determines the out outcome of the story. Our Gestell characters will not, of themselves, change anything. Only if we transform is there any hope of the story changing. But we are enslaved, says Heidegger. Buffered, says Taylor. Deluded rogue lords of the universe, says McNeil. Julian can help us. Her own subjectivity, her own self, was transformed by her revelations, not least because she was open to being transformed before they began. And the text she produced, because of its nature, can act on us like her revelations acted on her. Her text can transform our subjectivity in turn if we are open to it. She does, us, she does it by waking us up into an active, performative response. She does not mount a theological argument with which we can agree or disagree. She offers a poetic text, as philosopher-theologian Paul Ricoeur would put it, a text that awakens and transforms by the poetic power of its language. But in order to let it do so, we have to come to her text as disciples, not as critics. We come to her text to learn, as supplicants who know our need. In so doing, like Julian, we have already opened ourselves to the possibility of transformation. Coming to a text, coming to anything for that matter, as a disciple, does not conform with the subjectivity we have inherited. So my entreaty to come to Julian as disciples, not masters of her text, and learn from her is no minor request. I am asking us to be open to a new way of being and seeing that might, just might, provide an escape route from slavery to Gestell and the possibility of our learning how to live with the earth and not harm it. Julian's way of seeing her visions is not buffered, not gestell, but porous, responsive, interactive, above all open to her vision's transformative power. And she writes of her experience in such a way that even today, hundreds of years later, her words offer the same direct face-to-face -face encounter with her visions that can transform us as I found out for myself. <coughs> so, finally, uh, but it's quite a long finally, I would like to read you my version of her 14th revelation. So I have brought it into the 21st century a bit. I hope it shows, though, how she fully participates in the vision, how her writing brings it to lively encounter with her readers, and how it speaks to our contemporary ecological challenge. The 14th revelation is in response to her deep plea to God to explain sin. In her vision, in the, in the period of her visions, he has said to her, sin is behovely, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. 
she is shown no damned souls. All shall be well. But Holy Church has taught her there are damned souls, those who are not Christian, those who are Christian but do not lead Christian lives, the angels who fell from heaven, the Jews who did Jesus to death. Julian refuses to turn her back on Holy Church, but she cannot deny the truth of her visions, and the two are not the same. So she demands to be shown, she demands God that God should show her how God will make all things well. And this is the vision that's sent in response to that urgent plea. It's an extraordinary rewriting of the fall. She's shown, a, she's shown a simple tableau. A Lord is seated with a servant before him. The Lord bids the servant do something which she cannot hear. The servant runs to obey the Lord and in his haste he trips and falls into a deep ditch. He lies there in terrible pain from his fall. But the worst pain is that he cannot see his Lord because he has fallen with his head facing the other way and he cannot move. So he cannot see that the Lord is still regarding him with profound love. He fell from his haste to obey, note, not from disobedience. That is all Julian has shown at the time of her visions. Much, much later, and we can imagine her in her cell hearing this, She's told to look again at the visions, 15 years later. She's told to look again at the vision, to look at every detail of it, not to think about it, no, not to make something of it, but to look at it and look harder in more detail again and again. And that, thus she would understand it by means of her looking. And this is how I write this bit of Julian's story. I make all things well. How? Look again at the Lord and servant. Look at every detail. Learn. I watch the words emerge from my pen as I write and the 14th revelation comes to life once more. The Lord is seated and the servant stands before him. The Lord is seated on the ground, the earth, and the earth is dry, barren. The face of the Lord and the face of the servant are shining. They are in love with each other, this lordly squatter and the eager young man. And the Lord speaks, though still I cannot hear what he is saying. And the servant gathers himself on the instant of hearing his words and turns to do his bidding and runs in great haste and trips and falls into a deep ditch as I had seen before. I look back up to the Lord, who is now high up, high up above the fallen young man, like the bishop in the cathedral, but only because the man has fallen so deeply. And I can see the Lord's face, which is entirely towards the young man, and it is shining still with unchanged love and yearning. The Lord has not moved from his place on the barren earth. And I look back at the young man and he is groaning 
bruised, unable to move, and he has fallen, so his face is away from the Lord, and he cannot see the look of love on his Lord's face, and he is completely alone, body crumpled and in pain, and abandoned, believing himself unloved, deep in the ravine whence he had fallen, only because he longed to serve his Lord. Only because he longed to serve his Lord. Not because he sinned. Look again, Julian. I look back at the Lord, still sitting on the earth, but so high above the servant, and now I can see into his heart, and I feel a great joy, a magnificent joy, but a waiting joy. It is the suppressed excitement of a father who knows that however much his sick child is suffering, she will be healed and made a thousand times better when she emerges from her pain, a thousand times better. The pain will bring her there. And so he weeps for her pain, but he is also brimming with anticipated joy. He is weeping, and yet his heart is bursting with a joy that fills the heavens as he regards his fallen servant. His pity and his joy flow from him and enwrap the servant, holding him in love even as he lies prone in pain. And I look back at the poor servant lying in the mud, moaning and weeping, unable to move, his face in the mud, turned away from his Lord, utterly unknowing. I look into him. He has not sinned. He was just in a hurry to obey. Look more closely, Julian. And now I can see into the servant's heart and I see that his love of his Lord is unchanged. His will to serve his Lord is unchanged. But he is stunned. He does not know himself. And he cannot see his Lord. Is this sin? Servant in the mud, who are you? Look more closely, Julian. And now the servant is before the Lord once more, ready to start and do his will. The pageant is replayed. Now I see the servant is wearing the clothes of a worker, a kirtle to just below his knee, undyed linen, muddy and crusty with sweat, as though he has been labouring for a long time. Are you Adam? Are you all of us? Why are you standing so close to the Lord in your filthy rags? The Lord sits serenely on the barren earth. His rich robes are blue, fulsome and flowing, layer upon layer, fold upon fold, encompassing the Lord and falling from his shoulders to the ground, billowing all around him. His face is brown, his eyes are black and glowing. He radiates noble sobriety and delight. Are you God? Why are you sitting on the barren earth? Why are you delighted? The love ripples and flows between the Lord and the servant, filling me, its close observer, with its indestructible power. I look back at the servant. Are you only Adam. And the shining love that is between them is revealed as the love of a parent for a child and a child for her parent. Unbreakable. 
unconditional. You are Jesu, born of the Godhead before all ages. And you are Adam, made by God, birthing all humanity. One. And now I can hear the words of the loving Lord to his beloved Jesu and Adam, the words that Jesu Adam starts and runs to obey. I hunger. And Jesu Adam goes to bring food for his Lord, but the food has to be grown from the barren earth. And now I see the sun servant on his knees with his hands in the earth, gently dislodging the hard soil, crumbling it in his fingers so the moisture comes, softening and serving the earth on his knees with no aid but his own body to bring its fertility back to life, to make it fruitful again, and the fruit is the food of God, the only food that will nourish him. And the, word, and the work is long and, and hard and concentrated and vital, because without the fruit of the earth, God starves. And like a second player, but it is the same young man, Adam Jesu gardens the earth, but his hands are not gentle, they are impatient, and they do not find the moisture in the soil, but seek clever, quick ways of making the soil do his bidding. So it produces fruit, but the fruit is forced and has no sweetness, and the earth is suffering from being compelled to give birth to untimely fruit, too much of it, like a woman's body worn and diseased by too much childbirth. And now Adam Jesu seems to have forgotten the hunger of the Lord and is intent only upon production and more production, exhausting himself, exhausting the soil, until he falls in a swoon on his face in the mud, now poisoned by his voracious haste, and he disappears under the earth. And Jesu Adam is gently gardening still, but his calm digging does not cease, and it goes deeper and deeper still, his body aching and torn, his hands bleeding, till he has found the fruit for which God still hungers. Adam Jesu himself, lying in deep darkness, full of shame at his foolish, well-intended greed, helpless to amend. And Jesu Adam brings him forth, up into the light, and Adam Jesu is holding the hands of all humanity, all of us, I know not how, in our muddled, mistaken, lost helplessness, leading thousands upon thousands upon thousands of souls, till all the souls of the world are released into the light, their pain ended, their sight restored, and they gaze upon the loving Lord whose love has never ceased, only Adam Jesu could not see it. And Jesu, Adam, has felt all that pain, that shame, has gone to its source and been torn and wounded by it until he has found Adam Jesu and brought him into light. And now the gardening begins again, taken up by all humanity in imitation of Jesu Adam's gentle, unhurried tending. And the Lord eats of the unforced fruit and at last he is satisfied. And, Jesum Adam, and Jesu Adam Jesu is with him, and his beloved mother Mary is with him, and all the thousands upon thousands of souls are with him, none excluded, as if they are one soul, and the rejoicing is beyond all that I can say. I marvel. 
Sin is behovely, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. All, not some. All.